Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Jeremy, next time remember you've got a girl down here, about 10 feet tall here. Okay. I'm going to read um, our passage today by passage. Leviticus, can you guys hear me? Here we go. Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from this people. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among this people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations to all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And I will read the Shema to you. Shema Yisrael Adonai Aluchinu Adonai Echad Vayahavta et Adonai Alechecha Bachol Lavavka Ovechal Nefshaka Ovechal Maadecha Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 It is here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. She did it. Yeah, clap. Did somebody start clapping? She just went out, but that was awesome. All right. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Let's see, kiddos. Uh, We have Elevate and EGC this morning. So if you would like to, uh, if you are in uh, one of those realms first and second grade goes to elevate where i think you're going to be doing the feast of booths today actually a day ahead a week ahead and then uh third fourth and fifth grade can go to egc which there's a couple reasons for that one uh we don't have sunday school we don't have a lot a lot of kids activities but it's good for kids to build friendships and uh, we do have youth group where they get to kind of hang out and terrorize everything on wednesday night but um so we want kids to build community around while they are learning just the core beliefs of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And then the hope is that eventually those begin to stick. Uh, And uh, so when they start asking hard questions in life, uh, there are answers that are are in place from what we've learned about what does it mean to follow Jesus. Um, We're continuing on this morning in our sermon series through Leviticus 23 on the feasts and holy convocations. Uh, And we are on, today is the high holy day. Uh, it, it, well, not today. It'll actually be in September. But we're looking at uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, and so uh, I'm going to ask for, this is, there's a lot. I feel a little scattered coming into the morning. Um, there's going to be some in the middle of the sermon that's going to feel heavy, or maybe just a whole, like a whole lot of information. 
And I want you to know it should feel heavy. So if you're like, wow, this is a lot, and, and you feel like you're drinking from a waterfall, it's okay. You don't have to memorize all of it. There's not going to be a quiz, but I want you to feel the heaviness there. All right? Cool. Uh, so just a quick illustration to kind of get us in a courtroom mode. Um, I love the movie A Few Good Men. And uh, if, if you haven't seen it, you should. Basically, if, if it's a, there's no... There's no like sex or violence or anything. It's just courtroom drama and it's beautiful. And essentially, um, Maverick, the Navy pilot, plays Lieutenant Caffey, the Navy JAG uh, attorney. Okay? So that's how you place that. He also plays Tom Cruise in the um, uh, Mission Impossible movies. Um, and his whole thing is I'm, I'm not going to give the long setup, but essentially, he's trying to. Uh, get Jack Nicholson to admit that he ordered the code red and put two, uh, two Marines kind of like put them out to pasture by ordering the code red. And the big trip up, if you remember, it's this whole beautiful courtroom scene. <clears throat> and the big trip up is when, uh, when Maverick asks Jack Nicholson if, uh, or Lieutenant, uh, Colonel Jessup, um, what he did to prepare to come to Washington for one day to sit on the, to sit in the courtroom. Does anybody remember this? You guys are all staring at me like nobody's ever seen it. You need to watch this. All right. Um, and he's asking him what he did to prepare for the one day to be in court. And if you remember, he said, you know, he packed a change of clothes. Uh, he wore his formals on the, on the airline. And he made a couple phone calls. He called his sister because he thought she might like to have dinner tonight. Right? That's terrible. I'm sorry. Um, and... Uh, and Santiago, the subject, who was supposed to be transferred on the ba off the base, even though apparently it wasn't necessary to transfer him, um, but he was supposed to be transferred because he had asthma. I'm, I'm giving the setup anyway. He had asthma, which how did that get through all the Navy doctors in the first place? That's a big, that's a miss in the whole movie. Um, but but he, he forged the records, and so he's, Colonel Jessup did all this stuff for one day to make a trip up to Washington. Santiago was about to be transferred off this base, something he'd requested for, for numerous times, and all of his clothes were packed, and he hadn't called a soul, and he hadn't packed a thing. Remember that? We have all of that. We, we have habits of preparation. We have things that we do to prepare, to encounter stuff, to prepare for events, to... Um, uh, we get ready for our days, we prepare for meals, we prepare for travel or for company to come. And the more important the event, the bigger the deal it is, the more time and effort we put into the preparation, the more that is required in the preparation. And so today we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, which is this high holy day of the Jewish calendar year, the most solemn day. Uh, so for, for Christians, um, my, for my, my Jewish friend, she said, if you only go to church one day a year, this is the day you go to church, all right? Um, and uh, the day of preparation is... The time of preparation is extensive. It is, a, it is an incredibly important day. Um, we often put the apex of the story at the end, right? That's how we tell stories in the Western world. In Jewish, uh, in, in Jewish story writing, you put the apex of the story in the middle. 
And so the details of the Day of Atonement are in Leviticus 16, which is the middle chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third of five books in the Torah, which is the middle book of the five books of the Torah. It is in the middle of the middle. So this is the apex of the story here. It's the day that the high priest of Israel, on behalf of the people of Israel, stands before God directly. And so the preparations and what takes place on that day are rather extensive. And so the outline that we're going to walk through today, we're going to look at atonement needed, uh, atonement made, and then we'll finish with atonement fulfilled. First, atonement needed. Um, Even the word atonement uh, can carry some connotations in our world. Uh, It literally means covering, to, to pay on behalf of somebody, to cover them. Yom Kippur translates the day of covering, the day of atonement. It was the day that God would pronounce judgment for that year on all living creatures on the earth, humans and animals. And God would pronounce judgment for the coming year, and either they would receive, uh, well, it would be, he would determine who was righteous and who would receive his judgment. And This is something that I've found very interesting. For followers of Jesus, we tend to look at the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 as the basis for our overall need for atonement, right? The sin of Adam and Eve when they uh, refused uh, to trust God's word and ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. And this is where we would see that sin entered the world. Uh, Jesus and Paul reaffirmed this. I had always assumed that Jews and Gentiles basically read, read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the same way, uh, just minus the Messiah. Well, what's interesting is minus the Messiah gives a whole different context to the Hebrew Scriptures, and so we don't necessarily read it the, the same way. And my understanding, um, I don't know that this is universal, but my understanding is that uh, the Jewish people would not look at Adam and Eve as where sin entered the world. But they do have a concept of this idea of original sin. Obviously, they have a concept for our need for atonement that there was a a fall. So when we say creation rebellion, we look at the rebellion in Genesis 3. They do have a concept of rebellion, though. Um, When Moses met with God at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses, uh, he gave him the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this before. Essentially, this is a marriage covenant between God and his people. It is a wedding ceremony that Moses, supposed to be all the people of God there, but they freaked out, sent Moses in their stead. And so God and Moses enter a marriage covenant. And while this marriage ceremony is taking place, the first commandment in that covenant, have no other gods before me. And while the ceremony is taking place, the people of God, the people of Israel, led by Aaron, the great high priest, had already made a false god out of their jewelry and said, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. Betrayal (laughs) during the wedding ceremony. That's hard to do. And that's what they would see as the original sin. In fact, there's commentary uh, amongst one of the rabbis that said something to the effect of, if only 
a 20th of the problem. There is not an action of rebellion in the world that takes place today that does not have some remnant from the golden calf. So this is what they would look at, the original sin of Israel, the people of God. We have Adam and Eve, their distrust and their origin now, uh, uh, and then Israel has their origin as the sin of idolatry. Leaving the people of God deserving judgment, again, before the wedding ceremony even ended. So a covering or an atonement or a cost needed to be paid for this marriage to continue, for this relationship, for these people to continue to stand in the presence of God. Um, and so what we see scripture as a whole, both individually in Adam and Eve and corporately in the people of, uh, the people of Israel, um, is that they are guilty, as we are guilty, and in need of atonement, as we are in need of atonement. Now, <clears throat> there are lots of ways that we can react to this. Uh, when we hear, you are a guilty people, we are a guilty people, I am a guilty individual. There's ways that we can, we can react to this, um, re both religious and irreligious. Uh, sometimes as religious folks, sometimes we can take that and we can kind of minimize our sin. I know, I know I'm not perfect. But those people, right? But those people, uh, and we kind of minimize our own sin, and then we project it in great ways onto other people, whose sin we may not wrestle with, at least we may not wrestle with in public. Um, and that's a religious way that we can hear this word atonement and, and deal with our guilt. It's really, it's a way of avoiding Jesus as Savior. Uh, and what we'll say sometimes, we say, those people need Jesus, um, and, and I would submit to you, uh, and I think this is something that the church, especially in our day, that the church definitely needs to repent of and acknowledge, is that our first response should not necessarily be, those people need Jesus. The first response should be, I need Jesus. That should be the first things out of our mouth. That reminds us what Christ has accomplished. This is not assimilation so everybody can come and look and act and be and vote like us. It is a desperate need of grace and mercy, which I need first and foremost, chief of sinners. And I think our testimony to the world should be, we are a people in need of grace, and praise God, we have received forgiveness. And oh, that I want it for you too. But there's, another, there's also another way in our day, and this is, uh, I can't help but think this is in great reaction to um, the church and the religion and religion in general that is maybe even with good intentions not wanting people to feel bad about themselves and heap additional shame and so sometimes we can declare this whole need for atonement as the issue with religion all religion does is make you feel guilty i mean have you heard this right and this is all it, and we need to do away with religion because all it does is make us feel guilty and we should be uh we should not feel guilty um and uh, the problem is, we, even there, there's still a need for us to kind of measure ourselves against other people. There's an internal way to measure ourselves against other people, right? The bad people versus the good people. And at least I'm not as bad as, and I'm good. Uh, and there's an internal design that we have 
that God has graciously given us as kind of a guilt-o-meter to help us see when we are out of step with the way that we are designed to be. And you don't need it. Nobody needs to tell you about it. Atheists feel a measure of guilt. We can tell you general things that are right and wrong. Um, and then... In, in our current day, there's just a tidal wave of issues and, and, and positions that we have to keep ahead of and make sure that we're, we're holding the exact right position uh, lest we get cast out of that movement as well to avoid being tainted by the reality that we're just as much as part of the problem as everybody else. And so we have a world that tends to want to be either all forgiveness and no atonement for people that we agree with, or we want to be all atonement, all cost, and no forgiveness for the people that we disagree with. And then if we, if we ever don't turn our judgment toward other people and actually turn it on ourselves, it, becomes, it can become really tricky. Um, sometimes we can belittle our need for atonement, again, measuring it against other people. Uh, or more than likely, when we're honest, we can feel a deep sense of shame, which is why we take it out on other people, because it's too much for us to actually deal with and feel that maybe we are beyond forgiveness. It is just shame. And sometimes we will work and work and work and work and work to try to self-atone to feel, if we feel bad enough, then we'll be good enough, and it is a really horrible cycle that I hope and pray none of you deal with, but I'm pretty sure most of us actually deal with that, right? Um, and so, what we deal with internally can be hard to get a grasp on. Um, and even without all the bizarre voices around us. So I have a feeling most of us, without anybody telling us, without, certainly without people showing it, uh, shoving it down our throat, we know that there's something missing, that there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something guilty, there's something ashamed inside of us. And the hardest part can actually be admitting it. Hold that there, we're gonna get back to it. God, God declares here that individually and corporately there is a debt of sin, someone needs to pay for it. It needs to be covered, it needs to be atoned for. Enter the sacrificial system. This is actually a gracious system that God puts in place. In Genesis 3, God says to Ad God covers Adam and Eve. He, he kills an animal and covers them with his, their skin, their nakedness, their shame. That's an atonement. Later on in Genesis, God kills the ram uh, for the sacrifice instead of Isaac. And then Exodus 32 is kind of where it begins here when, when Israel uh, uh, has this um, betrayal during the ceremony, but, but even on into Leviticus, we see this sacrificial system put in place, which is actually God making another way for us to be paid for, for our sin to be paid for, okay? Um, so, here's what I want to do. Everybody still with me? All right, it's warm in here. Uh, is anybody else warm? No? Maybe it's me. Here's what I want to do. Uh, Leviticus 16 walks through the day of atonement for the people and for the high priest. Leviticus 23 that we read earlier, 
Um, it talks about uh, how everyone should afflict themselves. Afflicting themselves simply means a day of fasting. People would fast a week uh, from sunup to sundown, the 10 days prior to uh, the Day of Atonement, and then on the Day of Atonement, it would be a fast during the whole day, evening to evening. Um, but I want to walk through Leviticus 16, which actually gives the details. And this is where it may get a little overwhelming, but hang with me, all right? And I need glasses. Um, I'm going to try to paraphrase this. I'll give you the references, but I'm not going to necessarily read through the scripture. If you want to open your Bible to Leviticus 16, you can do that and follow along. Uh, I'm not going to give you the references, but, but we'll kind of walk through that. Here, I am going to give you the references. I'm not going to read them, but we'll walk through that. All right, here we go. A week before the Day of Atonement, actually, the high priest would leave his own house, and he would live in the side chambers of the temple. Uh, there was a backup. They did have a bullpen in place, a substitute for the high priest, in case he should die or become Levitically unfit for his duties. And during that week, he would perform all of the temple duties. He would burn the incense. He would light lamps, offering daily sacrifices. And he would also study two portions of the Torah to learn them by heart to make sure that he didn't make mistakes. On the eve of the Day of Atonement, the night before, the high priest would stay up all night learning the Torah. Keep this in mind, all right, because it's going to be a long day. He would stay up all night, learning the Torah, preparing himself spiritually. There would be priests around him to keep him awake at night by reading the Psalms. Sometimes they would just make him stand in the middle of the cold stone floor. On the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest alone who officiated. And uh, throughout the day, he would wash his whole body five times, and he would wash his hands and his feet ten times. So in the morning, he bathed, and he put on his usual priestly garments, which were these golden garments. Um, there were eight items, tunic, belt, turban, pants, breastplate, ephod, robe, and golden headplate. And the reason they called this his golden garments, gold was the symbol of splendor. He would wear the ephod, the vest, that would have 12 precious stones, I'm sorry, on the breastplate, 12 precious stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he would wash his hands and feet once he had that on and proceeded to perform the regular morning sac uh, sacrifices, which there were two additional lambs, and then he would light the lamps and burn the incense. And then the Yom Kippur services, the specific for that day, would begin. And again, as he began the Yom Kippur specific services, he would wash his hands and feet again. He would take off his golden garments, take a bath, and change into a simple robe made of white linen. And then again, washed his hands and feet. Leviticus 16.4 uh, tells us about this linen. On the Day of Atonement, he would wear white garments, tunic, belt, turban, and pants, what this would symbolize, he, the priest would represent God to the people in his golden garments, his splendor. But before God, he put on only white garments to come humbly and simply. He didn't come with the outward splendor of the gold and rich colors, but in pure white. White also being the color of forgiveness. And in this case, he's representing the people before God. First, he would have a sin offering. 
He would take a young bull, which would stand between the temple and the altar, facing the east, which is where the people of God were. And he would turn the head of the bull toward the west, lay both of his hands on the head of the bull, and pray for himself and for his family a prayer of confession. Then in Leviticus 16, 7 through 10, the high priest would walk over and they would choose two identical goats. He would walk over and cast a lot to which of the two goats one would be offered as a sacrifice to Jehovah, to God, and the other would be a scapegoat that would bear the collective sins of the people. And once they would cast a lot, they would designate each of the two goats. The high priest would take a piece of red wool and he would tie it around the horns of the scapegoat. And then he would tie the other half of that, he would tear it in half and tie the other half to a post in the temple. According to Jewish tradition, each year, and Jewish tradition, this is the Talmud. This is what's recorded in the Talmud. It's kind of a commentary. It's kind of history. It's rabbis debating, but this is all recorded in the Talmud. And according to Jewish tradition, each year when the scapegoat died, we'll get there in a few minutes, when the scapegoat died, um, the red wool on the temple door would turn white, as if to signify that the atonement of this Yom Kippur was acceptable to the Lord. Forty years before the second temple was destroyed, somewhere around 30 AD, according to Talmud, two different recordings, and one in the Jewish Talmud, uh, Jerusalem Talmud, and one in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, the red wool stopped turning white. Let me put some pieces together there. Sometimes Christians have a sense, can have a tendency of putting, uh, like adding some additional events to things to make them seem more spectacular. Um, but this is actually recorded in two different Talmuds that after 30 years, right around the time of the Messiah, the red wool that had turned white had stopped turning white. Okay. Following this, the scapegoat was turned around toward the people, stood facing them, waiting until their sins should be laid upon him. With this presentation of the scapegoat before the people, this began the third and most solemn part of the day. Everybody still with me? And we haven't even begun the, the holiest of parts here. Chapter, uh, Leviticus 16, 11 through 12. The high priest turns again toward the sanctuary and once again lays his hands on the bull which stood between the porch and the altar. The high priest would make the confession over the bull, this time on behalf of himself, his family, and the whole of the priesthood. And then the young bull was slaughtered. Its blood was collected in a basin to be used later, which we'll get to. An attendant would take the basin and continue to stir the, bulls, uh, stir the blood so that it did not become uh, coagulated. And then the most important part of the ceremony, the high priest walked up the ramp to the altar. He filled a gold censer. The censer is the container that incense would be placed in. <clears throat> 
Um, and he would fill it with coals and a golden ladle and uh, with the incense. And then with everyone watching, he walked into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where no one but the high priest entered except on the day of Yom Kippur. This was the place that contained the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelled. Leviticus 16, 12 through 13, what we see, the veil was folded back, it was closed. The high priest stood alone, separated from the people. He placed the censer between the staves of the Ark, and he now carefully put incense into his hand and threw it on the coals of the censer and waited for the most holy place to be filled with smoke. And if all went well, he would come out unscathed from the inner sanctuary for his first time. While the incense was being offered in the Holy of Holies, the people withdrew and worshipped in silence. And when, when they saw the high priest emerging from the sanctuary, they knew that the service had been accepted. Verses 14 through 19, the priest would go back in a second time into the Holy of Holies. He would take from the attendant uh, who continued to stir, he would take the blood of the bull. He would enter into the holy places and he would sprinkle once with his finger upward toward the mercy seat and then seven times downward onto the floor. And then he would come out from the most holy place and he would place the basin of the blood before the veil and then the goat that was to be offered before Jehovah was slaughtered. The high priest entered the most holy place a third time and would take the blood of the goat, sprinkle once toward the mercy seat and then seven times downward. And then he came out and placed the basin with the blood of the goat before the veil so the two basins were at the, at the foot of the veil. Then he would take the basin with the bull's blood toward the veil, sprinkle once upward, seven times downward. And then the same with the blood of the goat again. Then he would mix the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat together, and he would pour that in together so that they were mixed thoroughly, and then sprinkle each of the horns of the incense and then seven times on top of the altar of incense. Then he took the remaining blood outside to the inner court and poured out on the west side of the base of the altar the burnt uh, of the burnt offering. So, <clears throat> all of the sanctuary had been cleansed. That's what the blood, the sprinkling of the blood would do. The most holy place, the veil, the holy place, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering. Communion with God had been restored or continued, and the regular sacrificial proceedings could commence. And then we get to the scapegoat. The whole time, the scapegoat, while the, while the priest is doing this, the whole time the scapegoat continues to face the people, <clears throat> standing eastward, waiting to bear the sins of the people. The priest would come out, lay both of his hands on the head of the goat, and would confess the sins of the people and plead on their behalf. At that point, the scapegoat was led through the temple's east gate. A waiting priest was there, whose job it was to take, it to, uh, take the goat to a predetermined spot about 10 to 12 miles away. There would be stations along the way so that he could, uh, if he needed to eat, 
If he had grown too tired from his fast, he could eat. And he would take it to the final place, and the goat would be uh, pushed off of a cliff. And using a system of red flags, the the priest would lead the animal, uh, would lead the message back to the temple that the sins of the people had been forgiven. And here again, the tradition has it that when the sacrifice was fully accepted, when the scapegoat was pushed off the cliff, the flags would go up, they would receive word back at the temple, and according to tradition, the red wool on the temple door would turn miraculously white to symbolize the gracious promise given in Isaiah 118 when God says, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. But again, in the Talmud, we see that this miracle did not take place for 40 years before the, uh, before the destruction of the uh, second temple, after Christ himself had completed the final sacrifice. <clears throat> Following this, while the scapegoat was being led into the wilderness, this is Leviticus 20, uh, 16, 27, the high priest continued, uh, proceeded to cut the bull and the goat, take the inward organs, in a vessel, sent their carcasses out to be burned outside the city in the place where the temple of ashes were usually deposited. The high priest was still wearing his white linen garments, offered a series of prayers and passages concerning the Day of Atonement. 23 through 25, we see the conclusion. The high priest washed his hands and feet, took off his linen garments, bathed, put on his golden garments again, once more washed his hands and feet, And he now appeared again before the people as the Lord's anointed. So again, representing God before the people, and then going into the Holy of Holies, representing the people before God. Now coming back out, representing God before the people again. Um, Before he offered the burnt offerings for the afternoon service, he sacrificed a male goat as a sin offering, and the meat of this sin offering would be eaten later that night, uh, hosted by the high priest in his home. So it goes, he's also required to host a party later that night uh, after this day. Um, But the meat would be eaten uh, by the priests. Next, he sacrificed the burnt offerings for the people uh, and that for himself, and finally burned the inwards of the special offerings. And this, from 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 the proper standpoint, finished the day. Then there were additional evening services. After Yom Kippur had been concluded, the high priest would offer the ordinary evening sacrifice, wash his hands and feet once more, put off his golden garments, bathe, put back on his linen garments, wash his hands and feet again, and go into the Holy of Holies to get the censer the, uh, where the incense was that he had left in there previously, and he went back in, to get that. Uh, Then he would return once once more, washing his hands and feet, put off his linen garments, which were never to be used again. He bathed, put back on his golden garments, washed hands and feet, and then carried out the evening services with uh, incense uh, and then lighting the lamps. Finally, after that, he washed his hands and feet, put on his golden garments, Uh, took off his golden garment, sorry, and put on his ordinary layman's dress. And then again, as on his way home, he would be accompanied by well-wishers, who after praying and fasting all day, wanted to thank the high priest for a successful Yom Kippur. And then at home, he would host 
uh, it was his duty then to, to uh, invite all of the, the priests over and dignitaries for a feast. That night was a night of celebration. Usually there was a dance, and it was custom for unmarried men and women to dance in the vineyards uh, and meet someone. And all of the young women wore white so that the rich women would not have an advantage over the poor women. Most of this is bound to the temple. Once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, there were no longer sacrifices carried out because this was all bound to the temple. In our day, uh, most of this is a matter of personal repentance and um, the reading of passages and the saying of the prayers. Um, I wanted to talk more today about the Sabbath year, which was every seventh year, and the year of Jubilee, which is every seventh Sabbath year. Uh, we're gonna, we'll get to that next week. Um, this was the Day of Atonement. Now, obviously, there's details in here. Surprisingly, there's still details that we don't go into. This is a heavy day. There's a lot going on here. Uh, one year on Easter, I read a blog uh, that a pastor wrote. It was a, a much more progressive pastor um, talking about this idea of atonement. And, I, and I, whereas I, I understand his motive, his motive was to kind of war against this idea of feeling absolute shame and guilt uh, all the time. And, and that what we talked about earlier, like when we see religion as, as the mode of guilt. And so he tried to make it easy. And he just said, you know, we, we put this like God forgave us because he loved us. Um, this isn't, Jesus didn't make an atonement for us. Um, and, and he went on to write that, that forgiveness is easy. It should be easy. Someone takes 20 bucks from you, like, just forgive them. Uh, he, and he talked about going to a couple, that he had, he had failed to reach out to them in a time of need, and he felt bad, and he went to them, and they said, it's okay, you're forgiven. He said, forgiveness is easy. And again, I, I, think, I, I think part of me understands this point, um, but then I wonder if he's ever had to deal with like some deep, deep betrayal or hurt. I've sat down with people and counseled people in the middle of deep wounds and deep betrayal. And I can't fathom telling them forgiveness is easy. You just need to forgive. It is costly. It is painful. And just because he's God, he shows himself in lots of stories throughout the Hebrew scriptures of what it is like for him to be in relationship with this people and how painful it is. And so if you feel the weight of like, man, there's a lot in here, yeah. Forgiveness is costly. All right, let's take a deep breath. We'll get to the finish line here. My, my hope is that in listening to this, you, see, you feel a sense of the, not only the heaviness of the day, but the holiness of God and what all is required, even to just enter into his presence. Um, we talk about the fear of the Lord in our day, I don't know that we have the fear of the Lord in our day. Um, not like this. Um, 
we say things casually. I don't know that we would stand before anybody with, with an, even a remote amount of fear uh, like this. And I get, I get uh, you know, fair critiques of, of Christianity, but I see people mock God. I see people use God for political clout, which that's been done throughout history. Uh, I see people make fun of God. Ah, the big, fairy, big sky fairy, you know, or the spaghetti monster, or, or however. And this is what I think of. The Day of Atonement. My prayer is not like somehow that God would smite them and prove... Well, okay, sometimes that's my prayer. But, uh, but like... I'm not thinking, man, I wish God would just like strike them down and show his power. Um, I don't think of that. I think what would it be like for the high priest opening that veil and going and standing before the very presence of God, hoping that he got the instructions right? I think of the people waiting outside what must have been happening on that day. Was it enough? You could not simply approach God in a careless posture. And this would happen every year, once a year. Hebrews 10 lets us in on a little problem, though. One through four says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, since, uh, since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of the world. Four things that these sacrifices needed to accomplish. Ransom, a covering of the debt. Purification, the sprinkling of the blood to make, a, to make uh, clean. Repentance, turning away from our sin, the scapegoat that our sins would be cast far away from us. And then relationship, a reconciliation of, renewed, of renewal, that God was still present, that we could actually still be in this relationship as his covenant people. The author of Hebrews tells us that the bulls and goats and this whole ceremony was temporary but insufficient. It couldn't do it. It couldn't turn our, our hearts to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there is good news. You had to expect this part, right? As detailed as this gets, Jesus accomplishes every single one of these things. In Mark, we're told that Jesus gave his life as a ransom, that he is our propitiation, he is the payment of our debt. First John tells us that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that we are made pure and clean. In 2 Corinthians, we see that our forgiveness is secure, that he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be forgiven, that our sins would be cast far away from us. 
First Peter, we see that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That his covenant has been made secure, his relationship established. The work of Jesus has been, has fulfilled the atonement. So not only, not only do we no longer need a high priest to enter into the presence of God, but we, know we don't need the sacrificial system of bulls and goats. What do we need? We need humble hearts of repentance, willing to confess, willing to acknowledge our need for atonement and our desperate need for forgiveness. Hebrews 10 goes on to say this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, I wanted to uh, finish today, and we're, we're a little bit over. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you may walk out of here and not remember a thing I say, and, and, uh, but, but I think sometimes we, can, we sing our confessions more, better than, than we preach them. Um, so I was going to only do a couple verses of this, but I, th- I think we're going to do them all. Is that all right? Okay. Uh, and we have, we have the words. So we're going we're gonna to sing both a confession and praise together, and you're going to see some things that Jesus accomplished on the Day of Atonement. You'll see that here. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. We'll get that. Scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior! Guilty, vile, and helpless. Spotless Lamb of God was He, for atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a
conclusion, this is our hope, follower of Jesus. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then a new song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, there's so much to confess here. I take this lightly. I treat it sometimes with contempt, sometimes with indifference, sometimes with resentment. And yet, here you are bearing our shame, taking our sin, being our scapegoat, sprinkling your blood, washing us clean, making a way for us to enter into the presence of God without fear, without bad fear. Hallelujah, what a savior. So I pray this morning that this sinks in, that we can stand confidently before our King, but not unaware. God, all of this, the sacrificial system, the slaughtering of innocent animals, the giving of your own Son, reveals not that we are good, but that we are loved. And that's way better. Give us humble hearts to see our sin before we see the sins of the world, to confess and joyous hope at a great and gracious and merciful Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.